Hey, good morning. It's good to see you all. Uh, if this is your first time here, my name is Ricardo Stewart. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, just a little bit about redemption. We are one church. And we have multiple congregations. And so we have a congregation that meets in Arcadia, Gateway, Gilbert, here in Tempe, and then two church plants that are going on here in Arizona, one in Flagstaff and another here in West Mesa, um, just around the corner here. And that's the most unique congregation given that it's bilingual. And so they speak both Spanish and English in that congregation. So I want to just welcome you guys to uh, check out the West Mesa camp- campus whenever you guys get a chance to. You can find out information on the website which is another thing I want to bring your attention. For the past two years at Redemption, we've had a terrible website. Um, and everyone said, hey, we can't find pastors on the website. Do you guys not want us to find you? No, no, no. Um, that's not, that has not been at all. We want you guys to find us. And so we, uh, we are able for the past probably a year trying to put together a better website that would better um, communicate who we are as Redemption. And so uh, if you go to www.redemptionaz.com and just kind of navigate through that website, uh, you'll be able to see just a better website for, for Redemption as a whole um, and experience it. There will be some glitches and just let us know. In fact, let Jason Raber know. Just make sure to find Jason Raber um, and let him know and uh, we'll get that taken care of. But um, when you go on, um, it used to be when you went on, you'd see everything that happened at the Gilbert campus. And so everyone thought that the lead pastor here was white with white hair and about 65 years old. And I was like, no, he doesn't look like that, right? And so uh, now when you go to the page, it'll make you click a congregation and um, you'll click Tempe and then you'll go to everything that's happening in Redemption Tempe. And so uh, it's, a, it's a lot better and you can find our email addresses and whatnot. So feel free to email with, um, us, contact us, meet with us, and we'd love to meet with you all. So um, looking forward to that, um, better serving you guys and serving us as a church. few announcements that I have. One is today is a turkey drive, um, and so you guys have done a good job at bringing in frozen turkeys, not cooked turkeys first, so that's been really good. Um, but we are kind of low in our numbers, and so some of you would go, oh, I forgot today was a turkey drive. Is it too late? No. We'll be here for two more services tonight at 5 p.m. and 7 p.m., so feel free to drop by and throw your turkey inside, uh, inside that truck. We got about 150, 250 more turkeys to be bring in, and so go buy some more turkeys and uh, bring the turkeys in so we can uh, shatter that 350 number that we promised them on, on frozen turkeys. Next, we have a class coming up this Wednesday, and uh, unique to this, the first thing, time we've ever done this, we're going to have a class just for women uh, taught by one of the ladies here, and it's going to be a class on anxiety and how to, how to deal with anxiety. Um, that's uh, an issue that has been coming up a lot in counseling here, and so we thought it'd be great for us to have a class and more classes like that that are um, specific towards women, and so that'd be here um, Wednesday night from 6.30 p.m. to 8.30 or to 8 o'clock p.m. There will be child care this Wednesday, 6.30 to 8 p.m., um, and that's going to be a great time. Uh, we'll be having a membership class a couple weeks following that, which we'll give you more information about uh, later, but it'll be the last Wednesday of this month and the first Wednesday of December. Uh, baby dedications. And so we've been getting a lot of requests for baptisms and baby dedications before the end of the year. So we're going to try to pull off both of them in the same day. Um, so new birth, spiritual birth, it's going to be a great, great day for us. So December 9th, if you have a child that you have not dedicated. Now, I, I want to be clear. We're, we're, we're open to dedicating any of your children. But someone asked for a 26-year-old child to be uh, dedicated. And you know what? I, that's fine. I won't be able to hold him. Um, but... That would be fine. If you want to dedicate your children, by all means, dedicate them before the church. And if you want to get baptized, uh, just fill out your name and email address in the information card that's in the seat in front of you. And just put baby dedication or baptism. Drop it off in the offering boxes on your way out or during our time of response. And we'll make sure to get you some information on that. So that's all I have for a time of announcements. Uh, last week, Tyler Johnson was here teaching with you all. And he did a great job. Um, I was actually teaching at a church out in Corvallis, Oregon, a place that I... 
never want to go back to, but it was a lot of fun by being there, and it was, it's good to be back here, and uh, uh, I've been traveling a lot. It was in Alabama last, or on Thursday, then L.A. on Friday and Saturday, and uh, just uh, been telling the guys, I'm not good at traveling, and so every time I close my eyes, I'm still flying, um, so if I feel a little off, it's because I am not on drugs, just was flying a lot, right? So, but... Perfect, because I knew I was traveling a lot, and we already had uh, this day set to have one of our local pastors, one of our elders here in Redemption, to get his first sermon here, and, um, and he's already done one already, and so would you guys welcome Jim Mullins. Well, I am, uh, can you hear me? Is it working? All right. Uh, I am very excited to... Uh, be able to teach this text today. And I am primarily excited because I get to be here with my family, the people who are a part of the the church that that I'm a part of and I help lead. But I'm really excited about this text because it has tremendous amount of meaning in my life. Actually, the whole book of 1 Peter does. And if you know anything about 1 Peter that we've been talking about over the last few weeks... We know that this is a letter that's uh, written by Peter to Christians in suffering, painful, hostile situations. And one of the most challenging things I've ever done is I moved to Turkey and lived there for a few years. And I was on a campus, I was on a university campus, where there were probably only 10 to 12 uh, believers uh, in the whole school or maybe in the whole area of the city. And every week, uh, there were challenges, not just in living in a different country, but living in a place where there wasn't a lot of fellowship. But these few believers, we gathered together every week, prayed for each other, opened the word, and encouraged one another. And the first book that we really read was the book of First Peter. And so this book carried me through some real challenging times, and it carried the, the people that Peter was writing to through some challenging times. And I'm praying that here today, that these words would move us and shape us and and bless us here. Now, where we're at in the book of 1 Peter, uh, today we're going to focus on uh, chapter 3, verse 8 through 17. But these verses are a part of a larger context, a a larger sort of section in 1 Peter that that Peter is kind of going through. And I think what he does in verse 13 uh, through the the passage that we're going to read today is that Peter is using words to paint a picture of the different types of people in the church and the different types of potential challenge they might have as they seek to honor God and honor others in a somewhat of a hostile world. And so they say a, a picture is worth a thousand words, right? Well, I think Peter takes about 500 words here. And he gives us five pictures, five pictures of different people in the body of Christ. And uh, I don't think we can put a value on the words that he gives here. Um, the, the, The different pictures that you see as you're going through it, and we've talked about these in the past few weeks, is first Peter addresses how do you honor God while honoring the government? How do you honor um how do you honor your employer while honoring um God as well? even in hostile and unjust situations. And then in chapter 3, in the beginning of chapter 3, it moves to addressing husbands and wives and how they can honor each other while honoring God. And I think what happens today 
is we get two pictures from Peter that he sort of paints for us about the church. And he's not talking about specific groups of people within the church at this point. He, rather, he steps back and he, and he, he kind of gives the family portrait of God's family. He gives five words that really describe what the church should look like and who the church should be. And, and then... Uh, in verse 9 and through the end of the passage there, I think he gives us another picture. Not just the church, the family portrait of the church, but the, the church at work. He takes a, he's essentially giving us a picture of the family business of God's family, which I believe is extending blessing to all areas of life and to the ends of the earth. So that's where we're going to go today. We're going to look at these two pictures. The family portrait of God's family and the family business of God's family. So let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for the way that you have been faithful to us and you have carried us through challenging times many years ago, uh, hundreds of years ago, and today. We thank you, too, that we are not just a a community that's a self-protecting community, but a community that you have sent to be a blessing in the world. We thank you. Uh, we pray that your word would speak to us, that you would shape us as a community today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let's start with 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. And it says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And I think what Peter's doing here is he's using these five words, these five characteristics to give us a picture of what uh, God's family looks like, a portrait of God's family. Now, all five of these words would be pretty well-known words in the culture in the Roman world. Uh, They they would be well-known, they would be used on the streets, but these were unique words that, in particular, they, they focused on describing family and kinship relationships. And so by using these words, Peter is essentially saying that the body of Christ is like a family with God as the father. And and this is a good news because in a hostile world where a lot of crazy things were happening, people needed a place to find refuge. And these five words, although they were very common in the culture, Peter reinterprets them and fills them with all kinds of incredible and robust meaning as he looks at these words through the lens of the gospel and applies them to the church. So let's, uh, let's take a look at these words. The first word here is unity of mind. Now, what this, this word is saying is that it's talking about having a common thought pattern, a common ethical framework, a common worldview. This, this, this word, Peter's not trying to say that we have to give away all of our preferences and, and, and not have different things that we like and all just be kind of little drones at church where we all wear like the, uh, the dress code and we have a certain shirt that we all wear and things like that. No, what he's saying is that underneath the preferences of life, you find your identity and you find your framework for the world in a biblical worldview. And that as your mind is shaped into the mind of Christ, you will have everything in common with others because Christ is your everything. Now, again, I think what's beautiful about this, this word is because it calls us to unity, but not necessarily uh, um, 
it doesn't diminish diversity. And I'll just illustrate this. I'm going to tell you about some of the dynamics that happen in our office at, at work between the other pastors and, and how we relate to each other. And I want to tell you about the, the battle of the hamburger and the hummus. The battle of the hamburger and the hummus is fought several times a week. When Jason takes up one side, Pastor Jason, and he loves hamburgers. He loves good meat, barbecue. He's, you know, a good Midwestern type of food. And, and he is always trying to convince everybody that we should go to those type of places. And on the other hand, I am the hummus guy. I'm always saying, hey, let's go to the Somali restaurant. Let's go to the Mediterranean restaurant. Let's go to the Indian food place. Let's go get some hummus. And we're always trying to convince everybody and win the votes over onto our side so that we can go to our, our favorite restaurant here. And it is fine to have those preferential differences But the reality is that underneath all of that, both Jason and I should be able to defer to one another, appreciate one another, knowing that the main issue at hand is that God has given food as a gift that brothers can gather around and have fellowship around. You also know, if you haven't heard, that there are some ASU fans on the pastoral staff, right? Like that gets brought up from time to time. Uh, with, with Ricardo in particular. But what you might not know is that we also have a U of A guy on the, on the pastoral staff. Ryan Arneson went to U of A and loves U of A. And then you got Ricardo, who's the ASU guy. And the reality is they both love their different teams. But, the, but uh, they, they, they realize that football is a fun game. It can be enjoyed. But they don't find their identity in those teams. Rather, they find their identity Not in the colors of the jersey of the team that they support, but in the crimson color of the blood that was poured out through Christ, which brought them together in God's family. And furthermore, at this church, we often talk about loving the city. And and we have people in here who are very urban type people. But we also have suburban people who love the suburbs, who, who live in the Southeast Valley. Some of us live in Central Phoenix and in Scottsdale. The reality is we can come together and worship together as a community and not be defined by our preference of where we live, but ultimately come together and worship together, knowing that whatever home we live in is a gift from God and a place that should be a conduit of, of blessing to others. At this church, we actually have the chairman of the Maple Ash neighborhood, the nice urban neighborhood. Uh, and we, he must be sitting over here. And we actually also have not just people who live in the suburbs, we have people who make the suburbs, who are like the visionaries behind it and make whole communities here. And they can come together in Christ uh, knowing that he is their ultimate refuge. And so this unity of mind is beautiful because it calls us to a tremendous unity based on a biblical worldview and a vision of Jesus that doesn't diminish the diversity of the church. And the second uh, word that we can look at here is the word sympathy. Now, what what this word is talking about, this word is talking about emotion. The the last word was really referring to our mind, but we're not just called to love each other within the church with our minds, but also with our emotions, with sympathy. This word refers to the type of compassion and love that a mother has for a child. And the church, God's family, should be a place where we give our hearts to one another. 
where we're willing to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, who don't just protect our hearts for our own concerns, but give our hearts over uh, to the concerns of others. And we, we don't just give our mind, but we give our emotions as well. But then we get to this word, brotherly love, the third love in there. And many of the commentators that I read said that the emphasis should probably be placed on the word brotherly uh, rather than love. And that's kind of interesting, right? Because how do brothers love each other, right? Imagine how that, I mean, if you've seen brothers, they love each other with their fists, right? Um, but the reality is that, that brothers love each other in a unique way in that they have each other's back. They're committed to each other. It's not often that you're going to see brothers having a mushy, like, cry session together where they just, you know, had a long day and they just need a shoulder to cry on. Sometimes, but oftentimes, brothers will punch each other in the shoulder and move on. But what, what brothers are is they're committed to each other because they're a part of the same family. And, and you know this. If anyone ever grew up in my neighborhood, you would know that there was a rule around. The rule was this, that there was only one person who was allowed to beat up Joe Mullins. And that was Jim Mullins, his brother, me. And if anybody messed with my brother, we were going toe-to-toe. I had his back. And, and, and the, the reality is, in the church, we're not called to beat each other up or anything like that. Or, you know, uh, but we're called to be so committed to one another that we have each other's back. A type of commitment that actually transcends emotion. And we love each other even when we don't feel like it. We serve each other even when we... Don't feel like it. Brothers have each other back, each other's back and are bound together because they have the common blood of being in the same family. And we, in God's family, also share the common blood. But it's not the same blood that flows through our veins. It's the blood that flows from the veins of Christ, which was spilt on our behalf and made us a part of God's family. This fourth word here is an awesome word. It's a tender heart, right? Seems kind of a sweet word. Oh, a tender heart. Uh, but the reality is that word it doesn't sound anything like that. That word uh, in the Greek means intestines. It means guts. And what Peter is essentially saying here is that we've got to have guts for one, eno- one another. Affection that goes deep down into the deepest places of who we are. This word is associated with having Courageous compassion. And we need to have courageous compassion for each other in the body of Christ. In Peter's day, they might have, they needed to, there might have been some Christians who were suffering. And by associating with those Christians, you could put yourself in harm's way. And so Peter calls them to have this courageous compassion from the guts for one another. And we need to have that for one another in this room. Because here's the deal. The moment is coming. We all know it is. Where somebody in your redemption community or one of your friends here in the room, somebody in the body is going to get some bad news. Maybe they've lost a child. Maybe they got news that they have cancer. And the reality is that in the body of Christ, in God's family, we need to have that type of courage, that courageous compassion that says, no, I'm not going to just, you know, move away from them very slowly over time and just happen to get busy. But I'm going to enter into their pain and love them. We also need that same sort of courageous compassion as we walk with each other and challenge each other 
uh, in the sin that we struggle with. And this final word here um, is a humble mind. And what's scandalous here is that the word, this word, actually, this, this phrase, humble mind, would have been considered an insult in Peter's day. You see, humility as a, as a virtue was not actually popular in the world. It wasn't seen as a positive thing until the influence of Christianity sort of spread through the world. And this, this word was an insult that they might have heard that Peter's calling them to wear as a badge of honor. Because in your humility, you're reflecting the true humble one who is Jesus. And what he's saying to the church here is that in the church, we're called to, as we're called to love each other and humble ourselves before each other, we're not to see each other as stepping stools to advance our own goals. But rather than stepping on someone, we give our backs to be stepped on, to give them a boost, to lift them up. And these five words, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind, are the words that Peter uses to paint a beautiful picture of of God's family, of God's people. And I just got to say, as one of your pastors, we've talked about these things before. I just want to say, I see growth I see us becoming more of a loving church that brings in others. And I just want to commend you for that. But also, I want to say this. That this is important just not because it brings cohesion to our community. But ultimately, in being the church, we're painting a picture of the self-giving, generous love of Jesus. And as we give ourselves to each other, we show the world the one who gave himself for us. So that's the picture of the church. And now, now we're going to move on to talk about the picture of God's family business. The business of blessing. So let's read in 1 Peter 3.9. It says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So Peter here, he's basically saying, when you get insulted... When you get reviled, don't respond in in retaliation, but rather respond in blessing that other person. And you will find your blessing in doing that. Now, what's interesting about this is that I believe that what Peter's doing in saying the word bless and blessing, he's, he's not innovating. He's not making up a word. He's not making up some concept that's just kind of interesting. But rather what he's doing is he's actually reminding the the church of this theme of blessing that runs central through the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, you'll find blessing everywhere. You'll find it as one of the main central themes. And you could really even describe God's mission as a mission of blessing. And so Peter is saying, look, he's reminding them of this this concept of blessing because this is the family business what we've been about as a church as a community forever and it ultimately starts with god i mean think about family businesses you hear names like basha or earnhardt or saba and if you've been around arizona you think about a particular business or something like that a family business not a particular person and when the, the believers in this day heard the word blessing, they wouldn't have just heard a, a simple command in that moment, but they would have thought of the whole uh, story of Scripture and the blessing that God is bringing in the world. Now, 
as we talk about blessing, it's, it's really interesting. It's important to note that they lived in an honor-shame society. And in an honor-shame society, words had more impact. We, we say that, that little children's rhyme, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Hurt me. Well, let me say this. First of all, that's a lie that we tell our kids, right? Words hurt. But in Peter's day, they hurt even more. And if someone was to publicly shame you in his day and call you out, you, what would happen there would be that you were either supposed to retaliate and defend your honor, but also if you did nothing, it was as if you were accepting those words and that those words were sticking to you. And it could truly affect one's standing in society. And they might be looked down upon even more if they didn't retaliate when they were when they were reviled and cursed and shamed. But what Peter says here is he doesn't say just keep your head down and keep walking. Rather, he gets more scandalous. He says, no, on the contrary, bless, bless them. Now, it's important before we talk about blessing and what that looks like, that we kind of define what that word means. Because that's a hard word to know what it means, right? Especially in our day and age. Uh, Here's why. First of all, I think what we do with the word blessing is we kind of turned it into this like Christian filler word, right? Where anything that you don't know what to say as a Christian, you just throw the word blessing in there and it sounds holy enough, right? You know, so even, even ladies from the South will often say, bless your little heart. I never knew what that means. It's kind of weird. I got a big heart, a little heart. Bless the little one there. I, I don't know that saying. But, but what's even funny, funnier is, I mean, it fills all of our Christian Hallmark cards. It's just an overused word that seems to have lost its meaning and robust meaning that comes from the text. But what's even worse is the fact that the way that we use the word blessing the most is when we sneeze. In our day and age, you hear blessing associated with sneezing more than anything else. And functionally, what that word has come to mean in our culture is an acknowledgement that snot is coming out of somebody's nose, right? So if you have this amazing, uh, rich, beautiful word of blessing that's a central theme of all of Scripture, we've got to recapture it. So what does it mean? See, blessing... Is, is a definition would be the act of declaring or wishing God's favor or goodness upon somebody. It was kind of, in, in the biblical times, like a cross between uh, a speech and a prayer, where like patriarchs or fathers of a family or leaders would place their hand on top of someone and, and declare God's favor upon them and blessing upon them. But blessing also carries this, this idea, not just as a formality uh, that, that brings about some nice words, but that in blessing, we are a conduit that God, of, of, of God uh, extending his favor and his goodness to others. <clears throat> and so it's a really powerful, beautiful word that we find in Scripture. Now, um, let's talk a little bit about where we can find blessing in Scripture. And let's kind of trace this whole concept of blessing. So I'm going to make a few points about it. And the first point is, blessing is ultimately, it's the work of the Father in creation. That's the first place that we see it. In Genesis 1 and 2, you see God creating everything. Beautiful, perfect, good. He created this amazing world for us to live and flourish and walk with Him within 
And then the first blessing we ever hear does not come from human lips, but it comes from the lips of God as he declares blessing over his creation. And then in verse 128, he declares blessing over people, his image bearers in the world. And he blesses us to be able to live and to flourish and multiply in this perfect world that he had created for us. That's blessing. And so every time you experience an amazing Arizona sunset, you are experiencing God's blessing. Every time you hear a beautiful song, one of those songs that just gets you right in your heart, you're, you're experiencing the blessing of God, who, the God who created our ears and who created sound and who created song. Every time you sink your teeth into a nice, juicy watermelon, you're experiencing the blessing of the God who made watermelons and who made your taste buds and made them to go so well together. And every time you experience a new memory of, of a child or of your child, you're experiencing the blessing of the God who said, be fruitful and multiply. So blessing is holistic. And when we see the first blessing in Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God's blessing includes spiritual things. But it goes far beyond spiritual things into the physical world, into the physical realm, that we could live on this uh, world and walk with God and enjoy him and flourish with him. But that leads me to my second point. And the second point is this. God's people are invited into the work of blessing. See, the perfect flourishing and perfect life and creation that we were created for was disrupted and, and terrorized and, dis, and disfigured by sin. And now instead of living in God's perfect world and perfect creation, we live in a place that is filled with genocide. It's filled with painful uh, adultery, pornography. Uh, it's filled with the news that you have cancer. It's filled with all of these ugly, broken things. And the world is broken, but God is not done. What he does is he starts a redemptive mission, a mission to restore his world and to extend blessing to every place. When we say all of life is all for Jesus, that didn't start here. It began in the beginning with God, this claim over all of life. And so what he does to, to, to start and to, to really go after his mission is that he forms a community. He starts a family. And he starts a family through the family of this man, Abraham. And, and he takes Abraham and he says to him in uh, Genesis 12, 2 and 3, it says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed and all the nations of the earth find their blessing through this family of Abraham. And this family of Abraham uh, ultimately becomes a nation. And that nation is called Israel. And this nation lives under God's law. And God gives them this great, incredible law that's comprehensive, that covers all aspects of life. And when they're faithful to it, they experience God's blessing. And they extend a blessing to the surrounding nations. And the other nations look and say, how great is their God? But time and time again... Israel failed and was unfaithful and, and, and didn't 
uh, obey the law and, and refuse to be a blessing and refuse to participate in God's family business of blessing. And they brought a stain upon God's name. And, and over and over again, they failed. But then God enters into our mess and through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he, he, he covers our sin and he actually begins to gather a new community, a community of the church. Now the church gets to be this community, this family that takes on God's mission of blessing. And we get to be a part of it. And so what happens? Well, let me, let me tell you. If you really look at history, let me tell you some things that you're going to see. You're going to see a church that historically actually has been a great blessing to the world. In times of sickness, the church has been there to welcome in people and to care for them and to nurse them back into health. Into health. In times of famine, throughout history, the church has been there to give the last piece of bread to a family, to someone else's family member. And they have been a blessing throughout history. Nicholas Kristof, a guy who uh, writes for the New York Times, every time, he wrote this article a while back, and he basically just said, everywhere I go to cover suffering in the world, I find that Christians are there, loving people and blessing people. And so when we see this look at the church, that's a blessing. And shaped by a biblical worldview, the church has blessed the world by creating things like hospitals, which started within Christian communities. Universities like Harvard and Princeton and Yale, those started uh, with, with believers who really loved God. Things like Central Park were designed by, by, by people who said, you know what, in this city, it's good that we have commerce, but there must be a place of rest and a place of beauty because this is God's world. And he said uh, to rest. And, and so believers gave the world one of the best parks we've ever seen. Believers have been inspired to bless others through creating music, uh, shaping econo- economic systems, creating stunning architecture and medicine and things like nursing. Oftentimes, the church has been a champion of justice, influencing better prison conditions, care for orphans, abolition of slavery, the articulation of human rights. And when we have followed God and worked in his business of blessing, we have been a a blessing to the world. It's his family business. But the sad thing is, oftentimes we've been like Israel. And we have followed in their unfaithful path, path. When we deviate from this gospel of peace, we become a disruptive force in the world, not a blessing. We... We too often have sold our souls to support things like slavery in the history of the church. Too often we have turned from the voice of God to either listen with our left ear to people like Bill Maher and be shaped by him or listen with our right ear to people like Rush Limbaugh and be shaped by him. And so often we have become puppets of an ideology rather than conduits of the presence of Christ. Too often throughout history, we have vacated the Father's business of blessing and tried to invoke his name and put him to work in our business, in our black market business of sin. Too often in the history of church, instead of following him, we've asked God to follow us. And it's a shame and it's scandalous. 
And it brings down the name of God amongst the world. But God will not be our employee. He will not work for us in this, in this mess of sin that we can often make. His business, his family business of blessing will prevail and the ends of the earth will be blessed in him. Which leads me to my third point. God's blessing ultimately comes through Jesus. The great longing of restored and comprehensive blessing doesn't ultimately come from God's family as a whole, but ultimately comes from one person, from his one and only son, Jesus. And that even when God was choosing Abraham, it was Jesus he had in mind. Galatians three thirteen and 14 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. See, the ultimate promise of Abraham was that Jesus was born in his lineage. Jesus is the God who took, he's God who took on flesh, who lived the perfect life on our behalf, who died on our behalf to deal with the curse, and whose resurrection promises for us access to the restored blessing that God will one day bring about when he restores all things, makes all things right, looks to cancer, says, you're done, looks to divorce and the pain of adultery and those things and says, you're done, looks to internal discord and all the things we fear and says, you're done, I'm making all things new and he will restore his blessing. And it comes ultimately through Jesus. However, I believe that this passage here in 1 Peter is also talking about a sense in which the blessing can be experienced in this life. And it, as an echo, a foretaste, a preview of what's to come. I think that this is what Peter's getting at when he quotes Psalm 34. Uh, verses uh, 1 Peter 3, 10 through 12 are not uh, Peter's words that he's just coming up with, but actually he's quoting Psalm 34. And it's this beautiful psalm of deliverance that speaks about abundant blessing and an abundant life that we live before the face of God. Not where we live in health, wealth, and prosperity and those sorts of things where all the problems go away. But that a blessing and where our, our souls are truly satisfied as we feast with God as our ultimate satisfaction. It is in this psalm that, that Peter's quoting, Psalm 34 Verse 8, that it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And I believe that Peter is calling us to a unique and renewed vision of life. In this psalm, it talks about loving life and seeing good days. And when we're, we're restored to the work of, of God, and we're restored to the bless, his blessing through Christ, I believe we have a new vision of life. And everything begins to take on a whole new meaning and purpose. When, when you eat something, you know that it's not just some little thing that's giving you some carbohydrates to make it through the next few hours. But you know you're receiving a gift from him. When you see beautiful architecture, you see the reflections of God's creativity. You see, I think when, when we are restored and reconciled to God through Christ, we begin to live in this world not in black and white, but I think the gospel helps, lets us see everything anew in, in a different color. 
with a, a unique depth to it. I'll tell you, um, I did not read a single book. I did not finish a single book until I was 17 years old. And what happened was, is God got a hold of me. He saved me when I was about 16. And the first real book I ever read was the Bible. And what was amazing was, is as I read the Bible, I saw how incredible God is. And I was drawn to this God of the Bible. And I wanted to read it all the time. But the unique and unexpected thing was that in reading the Bible, it made me want to read all kinds of other books. Because suddenly I had a lens through which to view uh, all of the, the beauty of God's created world. It's not just functional, functional stuff that you get through to pass a class, but it's part of God's world. And so Mark Knoll, an author and historian, he has this great quote. He says, Who formed the world of nature, which provides the raw material for the physical sciences? Who formed the universe of human interactions, which is the raw material of politics, economics, sociology, and history? Who is the source of harmony, form, narrative pattern, which is the raw material for all art? Who is the source of the human mind, which is the raw material for philosophy and psychology? And who, moment by moment, maintains the connection between our minds and the world beyond our minds? God did and God does. In Christ, we are again blessed by God. And he gives us a new lens to see the world. And we experience a unique blessing as we live out this world as an echo of the next which is to come. But he also doesn't call us just to be blessed, which he does. We are to be blessed and enjoy this blessing. But we are also to join him in the family business, knowing that Christ is the ultimate answer in blessing the world. And so what does this blessing look like? Blessing looks like the folks who start the community gardens in the areas where they don't have food with a lot of nutrition. And it's a blessing to that community. It's those who, who look at our Arizona architecture with our high cinder block walls and says, this doesn't look like a community, it looks like a prison. So what you do, it's the person who, who moves their stuff into the front yard and puts a barbecue out there and, 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 and does a bunch of things and, and builds a porch so that community can happen in the front yard. It's the biomedical engineer Who's, who wants to be a blessing to the world. And so right now, he's working as hard as he can to work on certain instruments that's ultimately going to cure your daughter or my daughter of cancer. Essentially, what we're doing when we take this family business seriously and we extend blessing to all the different parts of all of God's world is we're painting a picture of who God is to the world. We live compelling lives as believers with a new lens on the world that demand an explanation. And I think what Peter says here is when we live these lives of blessing, people will ask questions. They will want to know what's unique about you. And we see this in 1 Peter 3.15. It says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you and do it with gentleness and respect. In other words, people are going to ask. They're going to say, what's the deal with that person? Imagine this. Imagine if the world saw teachers. Let's just say a teacher. 
A teacher who was an excellent fifth grade teacher who absolutely inspired students to love math and history and science. And all kids, almost every kid walks out of their class just fired up and amazed by these different subjects. And then the parents ask one day, how are you such a good teacher? How do you inspire these kids uh, to love these subjects? And, and she simply looks at them and says, I inspire them uh, because I am inspired by these subjects. And when I look at math and science, I get fired up because I get to see the different ways that God has ordered the world. And when I read history books, I see the God who's the author of all history. And not only is the author of history, but entered into history through the incarnation of Jesus and gave himself for us. The world will take notice and ask questions. The world will take notice and ask questions when they see entrepreneurs who move past the squabbling of different politicians about how to create jobs this way or that. And they say, I will take a risk by starting a business so that I can help provide jobs for my community and goods and resources. And I'm going to make this a really good and excellent business. And when people see that, they say, hey, why did you start this business? And that entrepreneur can look to him and say, the reason I start this business is because I believe in a God who's the provider of all things. The first entrepreneur who entered into the world. And he provides all things. And I merely look at my business as a conduit of his provision. And this God doesn't just provide us with goods and services, but he gives us himself in Jesus and I think we see this, too, with a faithful employee. If you can imagine someone who works 20 to 30 years in one place. And, and things like that aren't really uh, valued anymore. We value experience over faithfulness. And one day, someone looks to that employee who said, Hey, you've worked here a long time. What's kept you here in the thick of it? And that person can simply say, I try to pattern my life after the God who is faithful, who day after day provides everything I need. And just as the sun comes up and down, this faithful God shows up every day. And he's also faithful to never let me be separated from the love of God in Christ, answering the world's big questions. He faithfully answered in, in Jesus. Now, here's the thing. What we're doing when we live these type of lives is essentially we are showing the world who God is. And I think you can kind of think of it as a symphony. I really like to think of evangelism as a symphony. Rather than some uh, kind of pushy sales technique or a, a political campaign for Jesus where we try to change the world through bumper stickers and slogans, I believe that evangelism and what we're called to in proclaiming the gospel should be beautiful and it should be like a symphony where all of us together playing different parts and different instruments together as a community paint and, and play a beautiful song for the world, a song that they were meant to hear, the song of the gospel. And it is a beautiful song, and people will ask. But not all people. Some people will just move past and not want to hear the song you have for them. It may actually offend them. It may actually cost you something to keep playing that song. And so what are we supposed to do in that situation? What do we do when we're rejected for the song uh, that we're playing? Well, this, this, uh, this has been experienced before. 
There was a guy named Joshua Bell who played, who's a great violin, uh, he's a violinist, and he gets paid thousands of dollars, and you may have heard this story before, but one day he went to a subway in Washington, D.C., and he played for 45 minutes, and the world uh, and everybody just walked past him. 1,100 people walked past him, and just a few people stopped and listened to his beautiful music. But he kept playing. And we are called to keep playing as well. What Peter's doing here is he is saying that the Christians in that day were being reviled and persecuted and insulted. But rather than returning that and insulting them, he says, no, you keep blessing. Keep being a part of the family business. And when he's saying that, he's essentially just saying the words of Jesus. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who bless you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. Is this hard? Yes, you better believe it. Right now, it's not very hard in in America, as hard as it might be in some other places, but it is hard. And there may be some point in our life where we endure suffering for the name of Jesus. But what we're doing when we're doing that is we're reenacting his self-giving love. You see, Jesus didn't just talk about these things and say, love your enemy as an idea or a principle, but he actually lived it. When all of humanity cursed and reviled God, he blessed us. He moved towards us so close that he took on human flesh and he walked among us. And then he loved us so much that he endured suffering on the cross. When we hated him, he loved us. When we rejected him, he embraced us and atoned for our sins When we cursed him, he blessed us. And when we bless others, even when they're cursing us or don't like us, what we're doing is participating in the Father's business. And we're ultimately pointing to Jesus, the one who brought us into the family of God. And through through the blood of Christ, painted the perfect picture of God to the world. And we're pointing to the one through, who his, blo- through his blood painted us in to the family portrait of God's family. And this is what we're called to, church. Let's pray.